Hello, and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Some listeners of this podcast may be following John Sweeney wearing his lucky orange beanie pounding the streets of Kiev via his Patreon platform. If you're not following him, you should be. John, a veteran war correspondent, is joining us right now from Ukraine's capital on Monday the 28th of February, as Russia's tanks are only a small number of miles from the city. John, welcome to the bunker from your bunker. <laughs> no, my name is John Sweeney, not Vladimir Putin. I'm not in a bunker. I'm in a quite a nice flat with windows and Italian red wine and stuff like that. I know I've actually sourced a bunker, which I can't actually disclose its location. But if, if it gets nasty, I'll go below ground. But at the moment, it's okay. Well, John, it is for me and for all of our listeners, very good to hear your voice and to hear you in good spirits. Tell us, first of all, what today, the 28th of February, is like in Kiev. And then let's, we'll go on to talk about what we think might be coming up. So what's happened is that from Saturday 5 o'clock till through the whole of Saturday night, Sunday, the whole of Sunday till 8 o'clock, there was a curfew. And so the moment I could get out of my flat, I did. This isn't my first rodeo. First war I covered was Rwanda-Burundi in 88, which was a kind of a mini set of massacres, essentially in Burundi, before the awful ones in Rwanda some years later. But nevertheless, it was grim. And then the wars in Yugoslavia, well, the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq and the uh, the plight of the Kurds in 1991. So I've been lots of places. So I kind of knew what was happening and I've sort of stocked up. But anyway, I was going a bit mad inside my little box, my rather nice flat here, but never mind. So this morning I walked into town and bumped into there's a couple whether well, I'm a freelance journalist. I used to work for the BBC, but now I'm freelance. I'm trying to sort of generate money through Patreon also I'm trying to crowdfund a podcast about Vladimir Putin, both of which is going quite well. On Friday, Arthur, I got arrested by the goodies because I was locked in, I was filming stuff, and what I do is to generate interest and also Patreon stuff like this for the great British public, and people are uh, effectively uh, helping to fund me be here, so I need to give them something to justify what they're doing, to justify their generosity. So I film lots of stuff, little films, some of which work, some of which I throw away. And I was filming, uh, we heard there was some kind of firefight or some kind of a bit of a mini battle along the banks of the Dnipro. Myself and my um, pal, who I'm kind of loosely working with on and off, Oz Kataji, we were walking up the river the Dnipro, and there were some Ukrainian soldiers. And actually, what happened was I stopped because I had to do a live two-way with Jeremy Vine on the BBC Radio 2 and went ahead, so we got split up. And there were some Ukrainian soldiers, and I filmed them briefly. Uh, they were so far away, like specks in the distance, but nevertheless, these are the first Ukrainian soldiers I've seen. And they shouted at me, stop filming, stop filming. And I just went, yeah, 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 and carried on because I'm an arrogant twat, frankly. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I was arrested. And this guy said, give me your phone, give me your phone. I said, I'm not giving my phone. All I want to do, let me show you the picture, which on my Twitter is, I doorstep Vladimir Putin in 2014 after the shooting down of MH17. So there is my Twitter picture is Vladimir Putin, Peskov translating, and me scowling at Putin. Anyway, they thought I was a Russian spy. And I said, what? Yeah. Don't call me a Russian spy. 
And I started laughing, by which point I was arrested. And they called up the uh, Ukrainian intelligence, the SBU, and they were going to drive me to Ukrainian intelligence so that I would be checked out to test whether I was a Ukrainian spy. And by this point, I was kind of stuck inside the military administration machine yeah. to get out. And then the guy who arrested me, this guy called Vlad, he started Googling me and he said, look, there's you and Putin. And I said, yeah, yes, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> but I've already been arrested. Anyway, they realized I'd made a mistake, but the point is I was booked into the system. You know, yeah. I got the parking ticket. And, and <laughs> they gave me a cup of tea and it was lovely and everything was nice. Then we went to the SBU, and when we got there, the Friday was really paranoid and really creepy. And the thing is that these guys, they were kind of more militia than uniformed soldiers. Yeah. And um, the SBU didn't like the look of them. And then my pal said, I think they're being a bit paranoid about us. Right. And I didn't say anything, but I just wanted to say, well, welcome to my world. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, the other thing is that the SBU is probably the number one or the number two target of the Russian missile fleet. Of course. So it's kind of felt slightly sketchy hanging out there, but I had no choice. Eventually, I found a, a smart bloke, looked at me, went through my phone. I said, listen, I'm sorry about these pictures of the Ukrainian soldiers. I apologize for wasting your time. I deleted them. He looked through the, quite a lot of my pictures, realized they were all of ordinary Ukrainian civilians in the tube, in the metro, me talking to ordinary people on the street, all that stuff. It was okay. It was professional. They let me go. Anyway, this morning, I walked down and I found my friend Vlad again. And uh, by the way, I did a video Friday night saying I had a rough old day. And I started drinking a hefty gin and tonic, which I always do at drink o'clock, which is my five o'clock here. And you could see the kind of slight exhaustion in my face. And this video has had a million views on Twitter. But anyway, I went down to the place where Vlad had, had kind of nicked me, as it were. And he said, I saw your video. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're bringing fame to the Ukrainian militia. Yeah, but he also said, by the way, John, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a film director. And I said, what are you fucking nicked? Anyway, he was very intent on his soldierly duties, but uh, there's a pal there. To answer your question, it's extremely tense. There is a real fear of subversives, of Russian spies, and yeah. at the same time, if you can punch through, then there is an enormous love of anybody who's spending time in Kiev in a way that makes me think about fighting for the Republic in Spain in 1936, or yeah. It's the better and the happier analogy being in Soho in 1940. So after meeting Vlad's, I walked down. Then the air raid sirens go off across the river. They call it the left bank, which is annoying because it's actually the east bank. So most of Kiev is on the west bank. East bank is the power station. And every now and then the Russians fire a missile to knock it out. And every time Ukrainian air defense system knocks out the Russian missile. And it's about 15 miles from the center of Kiev. And that's keeping your lights on? Yeah. So the electricity is on, the lights are on. But what happened was my pal, a guy called Josh Stubbins, he said, look at that. And you could see the kind of arc of 
some kind of thin vapor trail and it was beautiful, brilliantly cold day. And then a puff of smoke. And look at that. And then five seconds. And then... So that was the Ukrainian anti-missile stuff knocking out the Russian missile again. And he keeps the lights on. So from the day one, I felt that Vladimir Putin had made a mistake because there was still electricity and there was still internet. This invasion is not going well. No. One of the things I've seen you say on your videos, John, and, and, and it's sort of worth, I guess, bears repeating, is that, of course, Kiev is, is a huge city, as you expect for, a, for the capital of a huge country. So there might be skirmishing in a place that's the equivalent of sort of Edgware, but you're holed up in the equivalent of Westminster or Lambeth. And therefore, you know, that's still quite a long way off. It, is, that, is that sort of how it feels at the moment? Yeah, so I am exactly that. I'm actually in Lambeth. 20 minutes walk to the Maidan, to the centre, to Westminster Whitehall. And there is fighting in Croydon, and there is fighting in Edgware. And I can't hear it. I mean, I'm, I'm sleeping like a log. And then there's a kind of thing like, do I open my phone? And the moment I open my phone, and it's kind of like an hour's gone. But essentially, Kiev hasn't been hit. Yeah. The outskirts have, but not the centre. And the reason for that, I think, is because Vladimir Putin is afraid to do so. Yeah. And I guess that seems to me to come to the heart of the dilemma which is facing Vladimir Putin, but perhaps more importantly, facing the millions of people like yourself still in Kiev, which is this. Vladimir Putin, he doesn't want to flatten the city, not because he gives a damn, I'm afraid, about you and the other people there, but because it looks bad. What's your thinking on this? Do you think he's going to lose his nerve because he realises if he doesn't do that, he's, he's not getting anywhere? This feels to me, Arthur, like that it's twilight of the gods, that Putin has made a miscalculation, to put it mildly. And there's a friend of mine, so this guy is called Semyon Guzman, and he, back in 71, was the first Soviet psychiatrist, or psychiatrist back in the days of the Soviet Union, to oppose the Soviet state's abuse of psychiatry against dissidents. The dissident that he was defending was a Ukrainian general who'd fought the Nazis incredibly bravely, called, I think, uh, Grigorenko. And General Grigorenko said that the Communist Party was corrupt and it should go back to its principles. Yeah. It was stealing too much money and living the, living, uh, the high life. Grigorenko was locked up in a loony bin and given all sorts of desperate psychiatric drugs. And he was quite sane. Semyon wrote a report saying this was wrong. And Semyon spent 10 years in the gulag. Yeah. But he's got them, he's 75 now. And he has the most beautiful mind, Arthur. So I asked him, what's with this long table, him and Macron, you know, miles away, Macron miles away. And Semyon goes, the distance between Putin and his death. Hmm. So Semyon thinks that Putin is sane, not mad, bad, becoming like Hitler. I think that Vladimir Putin is a rational actor in a bunker so deep and so devoid of light, he is no longer in proper contact with reality. So does that mean that the decisions he is making, I mean, is, is this the sort of the kind of Wizard of Oz type metaphor where he, he's sitting there and he thinks he's pulling levers, but the levers aren't attached to anything? Or is it that 
his commanders are basically a bit incompetent because it's hard to look at Russia's war so far and judge them highly on their competence. Of course, we have to honour the heroic resistance of the Ukrainians, but the Russians themselves don't seem to be doing a very good job. No, they're doing a rubbish job. So number one, I don't think that he, I find this astonishing, but I'm going to say it. The thing is that he is not in full control of his military machinery. Yeah. He's pulling levers and it's not working. So the most interesting thing that happened the other day was the attack on the Antonov Air Base. And what happened was Russian helicopters, the Ukrainians managed to shoot down three of them, and they landed and took hold of the Antonov Air Base on the first day of the war. That night, Ukrainian special forces came in and took it back. The next morning, heavy metal coming down from Belarus by surprise got to the airport and took it back again. Yeah. And by the way, this heavy metal was full of Chechen troops. Yeah. And these are the Chechen renegades who betrayed the dreams of independence by their countrymen and take the Kremlin ruble. And these are ones who literally don't take prisoners. They're murderers, and they murder for Vladimir Putin. And in one strike alone, 70 of them were burnt to a cinder. By this Turkish drone. Yeah. And the gossip is that Ramzan Kadyrov, the fascistic leader of Chechnya, has said that it's over. And there's an argument, there's a, apparently a Chechen general there who, who may have got fried. Now, the, the significance is this, is that there was no proper military planning and the airborne helicopter attack and the heavy metal attack should have happened at the same time, and they didn't. My view, my deduction, is the reason that didn't happen is that Putin didn't give the go code to the Russian military because he feared a security breach so that there wasn't enough planning. And exactly like Brezhnev, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 is a fascinating thing to study because what happens is the generals say, don't do this because it will not go well for us. But the Minister of Defence was afraid to tell Brezhnev that, so the invasion went ahead. Once again, in Chechnya, the Russians, there's this wonderful guy called General Alexander Lebed, who my friend Harold Ellison wrote a great book about, getting to know the general. And the thing about General Lebed is he says, in Chechnya, the first Chechen war, we Russians have stepped on the same rate twice. And again, what happened was the first Chechen war was launched with the military saying this isn't going to work, it's not going to be good. Their anxieties were not properly relayed by the defense minister to the Politburo, to Gorbachev and his gang. So what's happened again is I think the Russian generals and intelligence wanted to say this is not a good idea. But Putin's intelligence, his neural computer, the number of, of, of feeds into him has been so diminished because of his paranoia about COVID yeah. that he doesn't know what's going on. So I think he's a cunning and clever manipulator, a rational actor locked inside a dark dungeon of his own imagining. And he's blundering around because he doesn't understand the 21st century. And it's very easy to imagine in that circumstance that he can't, you can't sort of run a complex sort of manoeuvre war campaign from a bunker when you're not talking to anyone, I suppose. You know, that's to sort of put it simply. 
And so the reason it's been a disaster is he needed to tell the military, do this and I want a coordinated plan. But the Putin system is a kleptocracy where you've got a series of rival gangsters trying to compete with each other. So the head of Airborne and the head of Heavy Metal should have sat down and said, here's the plan to take the Antonov Air Base and we'll hit it both at the same time. Yeah. What happened was... They didn't get enough people in there first time, and then they lost control. And when the heavy metal turned up, they got zapped. Secondly, it does really, really feel as if I'm inside the set of Dad's army right now. I said, Semin, are you going to fight? And he said, it's a good question. No one else has asked me. It's a good question, John. I'm 75. I don't know how to fire a gun, and I've never killed anyone. I'm too old to learn to start. But if they come here, the tanks come here, I will protest. I don't want to die, but I will protest. Then you've got all these kind of yoga teachers making lots of cocktails. Right. And, and, and it just feels like this is Corporal Jones. But the point about Dad's Army was it was a joke and it was silly. Yeah. It was serious and it was real. Britain in 1940 did not want Nazi Germany to invade. They did not want Nazi Germany's dark nonsense to squash British democracy. And they fought like tigers. And it's the same thing here. You know, my family, my kids are worried about me, but at the same time, they are proud that I'm here and I'm proud to be here. It It feels right. And for the moment, you have to deal with the fear and you have to deal with the anxiety but actually, where I am in, in, in Kiev's version of Lambeth, it's okay for the moment. I was uh, very glad to hear that. I guess a lot of people sitting on the outside are getting worried about escalation, about, you know, veiled nuclear threats, about the degree to which the Russians might realise they're not getting anywhere and, and try something different, or the risks of this spilling out into neighbouring countries. What are your feelings on that? Obviously, you've got to worry about this stuff. So the problem is Putin has lost face. He has made a strategic mistake. I think the smart people around him, I'm looking at people like Peskov. Peskov's daughter tweeted this was a mistake. Abramovich's daughter tweeted this was a mistake. Both tweets or uh, statements on Instagram, social media, whatever they were, were deleted. The head, what's his name? You might know the name better than I do, but the head of Russian SVR foreign... Nerishkin. Yeah, Narushkin is clearly not convinced. He's not happy, is he? (laughs) He's not happy. And also, there is good evidence that Russian soldiers are affecting a silent mutiny. The Ukrainians are saying there's like 5,000 Russian soldiers in a holding area on the other side of Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city to the east of Kiev, very close to the Russian border. And they really, really, really didn't want to fight. And they haven't come across and so what the Russians are now doing is firing kind of grads and stuff like that. But it's it looks terrible. It is terrible. It feels like this war is very, very 20th century. And that Putin doesn't get that. The long table, I mean, he looks like a czar entirely out of touch with his people. Everybody in Russia, everybody who's not very well off, will know that they have to deal, never mind COVID, They have to work uh, to earn money, and to do that, you've got to mix all the time with other people. The idea that Putin can sit so far away from other people, it's an expression of his supreme power, sure, but it looks bloody awful. 
especially when you contrast it with what the president of Ukraine is doing. I thought we should perhaps talk about him a bit. Volodymyr Zelensky, who's sort of in, in about the space of a week become the most popular international leader bar none. What are people saying about him there in Ukraine? And, and what are your own sort of views on him? So Samuel doesn't like him. And I understand this. He's too close to a guy called Igor or Ihor Holomoysky. Yeah. Who is a big oligarch. I'll put it like that. And the Holomoysky, the gossip is that Holomoysky is, he's being sanctioned by the Americans. That's not gossip. That's true. He's being sanctioned for stealing money, etc. And he was so opposed to the Americans because of that, he kept on denying the validity of the American claims or the American substance that Russia was going to attack. That is the scorecard against Zelensky. However, once it happened, he's played a blinder. And uh, what my friend Semin says, I, I want to have a different president of Ukraine, but I certainly don't want that different president to be the Russian president. It's my country. So Zelensky has been brilliant. He's been funny and good. He's retained his humanity. Putin is saying that Zelensky runs a Nazi or neo-Nazi regime. Well, Zelensky's Jewish. This isn't her frick from a lower low. You know, these are not Nazis. <laughs> On the contrary, you know, what we're dealing with with Putin is, I think, he's a dictator and we're dealing with what is more or less Russian fascism. So the fascinating thing is that Zelensky's played a blinder, the Ukrainians have played a blinder with humour and love and respect and love of openness. And this morning, I looked at the, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a, con, a Ukrainian player for Benfica. There was some uh, game in Spain, I think. Yep. And they gave him the captain's badge. And before the game, both sides, Benfica and whoever they were playing against, they just went mad with applause for the Ukrainian player. Yeah. And I found myself, I burst into tears, and I'd been completely stiff up a lip from the moment I arrived here. And the thing that made me cry was Spanish football players saluting the courage of Ukraine through this one player. And it, it did make me burst into tears. So we're all under stress here. But I actually think, and even on the day I was arrested by the goodies, by the Ukrainian army, I said, listen, I don't think Zelensky's in trouble. I even don't think John Sweeney's in trouble, even though I got arrested today and then sent to the Ukrainian intelligence to be checked out. I actually think Vladimir Putin's in trouble. I think it's the end game for him. There's no way out. The rubles tanked, what is it, 40% today? Yeah. 40 fucking percent. That is astonishing. The whole edifice of Putin's financial deal with the Russian elite, i.e. you pretend that I'm a Democrat and the money's going to be okay. He's just screwed that up. And I feel that the oligarchs hate him and he's passed his sell-by date. And I think as in 1917, the Russian army will vote with its feet and they will not go to war. They will not prosecute this war. Now, it's one thing to con some paratroopers to get over to Ukraine, and then they switch on their phones and realize, God, I'm in Ukraine. That can happen, but to prosecute the big nasty war Vladimir Putin needs to do to defeat Ukraine, or at least take Kiev, he's not going to do it because his soldiers won't want to. 
there's a kind of this is a Christian Orthodox versus Christian Orthodox. Now that feels in our kind of post-Christian sensibility in Britain and the West, it kind of feels weird enough to talk about this stuff. But in Russia, it isn't. And the idea that Orthodox Christians are going out to kill Orthodox Christians because it's a Nazi state, even though the president and the prime minister is Jewish, doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. So that I think Putin is unhinged. And the scary thing you're right to identify is, will he out of anger smash Kiev? But even then, you've got to have people who are going to push the buttons on the rockets. And there's a certain point where if I'm a good rocket general, I say, I'm not doing this. We've run out of fuel. We've run out of rockets. I can see that happening. I think Vladimir Putin's in trouble. If it turns out that way, what we're talking about is not just the survival of democracy in Ukraine, but we're talking about the end of Vladimir Putin. Yes, I think so. I think he's finished. I don't know how it's going to end. He could kill a lot of people here. He could kill a lot of Russians too. But I think his regime has reached the beginning of the end. John, that feels like the place we should end. I just want to say, first off, thank you so much for talking to us. And secondly, of course, all of our listeners, all of your Patreon followers, and I hope there'll be many more after this podcast, we'll make sure all the links are on the notes for the podcast. We want you to stay safe, keep reporting, and please keep in touch. Arthur, you owe me a drink. I, I did one or two, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take you up on that, mate. Don't you worry. Thanks on me next time you're somewhere west of Kiev. Cheers, old boy. You take care. Thanks, John. Cheers. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode... Why not share it with three friends using the Bunker Up hashtag? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. And you can also look up John Sweeney's work in Ukraine on Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofonievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>